Settlers caught in the capitalist regime appear unwilling to learn to live with the earth and to support multi-species flourishing. And it seems to me that the only way forward is land back and water back to indigenous care. We should not assume that an interest in plant intelligence in artistic and plant science worlds uh, is spontaneously aligned to the ethics of multi-species justice. The injustice that is called industrial animal agriculture is everywhere hidden. You're listening to the SEI podcast series, brought to you by the Sydney Environment Institute at the University of Sydney. I'd like to commence by acknowledging that I'm speaking from the traditional lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. It's on their ancestral lands that the Camperdown campus of the University of Sydney is built and their custodianship has never been ceded. I acknowledge Elders past, present and emerging and express my gratitude to the traditional custodians for their millennia of care of the multi-species relationships that constitute the worlds that support our lives. Good evening, good morning, good time, wherever the sun finds you on the planet. I'm Professor Danny Salomon, Deputy Director of the Sydney Environment Institute. I want to welcome you to our discussion on colonialism, capitalism, or capitalism, colonialism, and multi-species justice. So tonight's discussion is both an event in itself, but it also marks the launch of a special issue of the journal Cultural Politics on multi-species justice that Sophie and I co-edited, and that our four panellists, Christine Winter, Hayley Singer, Sreya Chatterjee, and Sue Reid contributed to. Sophie is gonna be introducing them in a few moments when she opens up the conversation with the four of them. So just four years ago, in 2019, an interdisciplinary group of scholars gathered in this place to begin exploring the concept of multi-species justice, or to be more accurate, to begin exploring it in the context of the Western Academy. Because as Christine Winter has articulated so powerfully in her essay in this journal and throughout her work more broadly, what appears radical for non-Indigenous societies, the idea that justice is not limited to human subjects, has been and continues to be embedded in the philosophies, protocols and politics of many First Nations peoples. Nevertheless, in recent years, it's become apparent to many of us, many of us non-Indigenous scholars and activists, that the conceptions of justice that organise contemporary societies or dominate contemporary societies are problematic. They're problematic because they're inadequate to deal with the ecological and social devastations that are ravaging life worlds across the planet. But more than that, they're inadequate because it's those conceptions of justice, conceptions that exclude the vast majority of Earth beings and render them resource to be exploited are causes of those very devastations. So if the idea of justice is to be an ally in the struggle for care for planetary worlds, it has to be a conception of justice that is attentive to all Earth beings who comprise 
those worlds and also attentive to the relational fabrics within which they and we exist. So this special issue that forms the foundation of our discussion tonight emerged from these early conversations, but it also marks how the field of multi-species justice has morphed and grown in the ensuing years. The shifts that we've seen in the field, I think are partly because, and wonderfully so, because more and more and diverse voices from different communities, from different disciplines are entering into the conversation and bringing new perspectives. But it's also morphing and changing because we are having this conversation in the context of intensifying and deepening planetary crises, where the effects of ecological devastation are becoming broader and deeper and affecting more and more Earth beings. So in other words, this is not just an internal scholarly conversation, it's one to which other earth beings are increasingly calling us to respond. So I just want to turn briefly to the special issue itself as part of this ongoing work of articulating multi-species justice. Its focus was, as per the name of the journal, Cultural Politics, on the cultural political transformations that are required to support multi-species justice. So for us as editors and for the, the scholars who we invited to be part of this special issue, we were trying to reflect on how political practices are always um, constituted and sustained by, but also potentially disrupted by cultural orientations, meanings and practices. And at the same time, how those meanings and practices that we call culture are sustained or disrupted by the institution of work done by politics. So our issue, this issue and the essays in it, emerges at the intersection of entrenched and contested power relationships, embedded and emergent meanings, and violent and disruptive practices. The journal also provided us with the opportunity to expand the traditional media through which we as scholars work, the written word, um, and as you'll see, if you look at the issue, we had the opportunity alongside the seven brilliant essays to have to include the artwork of two extraordinary visual artists, Janet Lawrence and Ravi Agarwal, and um, a poem by the really superb poet David Brooks. And I wanted just in this opening to read a few lines from David's poem, Taralga Road, because I think more than my words can, it evokes the type of aura that this issue is trying to provoke amongst readers. So it's a poem called Taraga Road. Wombat, she announces, just after Talo, and stops, gets out. I see her in the rearview mirror turn the body over before walking quickly back for gloves and a cloth from the first aid kit. She's dead, she says, but there's a tiny paw reaching from the pouch I've got to check. Across the road, two young black steers, ears blue tagged for slaughter, amble to the fence and watch. Then others, and still more, a dozen, twenty eyes wide in concern. If they weren't animals, you'd think they knew her. 
in this evening's event, as I said, four contributors from the Specialist View are going to share how their work engages with this complex of cultural political questions around capitalist and colonial exclusion and violence, but also the possibilities of post-capitalist and anti-colonial practices of multi-species justice. But before I hand over to Sophie, I do want to acknowledge the scholars who aren't joining us tonight, but whose contributions are part of the journal. So Estrida Naimanis, Daniel Ruiz Serena, Dahlia Nasser and Margaret Barbour, and of course the work of David Brooks, Janet Lawrence and Ravi Agarwal. And I also want to deeply thank and acknowledge the team at Cultural Politics, especially Eva Giraud, the lead editor, but also John Armitage, who's no longer there, but who originally commissioned the special issue, Tanya Roy, the arts editor, and Ryan Bishop and Mark Featherstone from the editorial team. Over to you, Sophie. Thank you, Danny. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening to all, and thank you so much for being part of this conversation on colonialism, capitalism, and multi-species justice. I'm Sophie Chow, I'm a DECRA Fellow and Lecturer in Anthropology at the University of Sydney, and also lead of the Biocultural Diversities Research Theme at the Sydney Environment Institute. Uh, to keep things moving swiftly, I'll introduce our speakers as we move through the evening, and I'll do so very briefly uh, as their full bios are available on the event page. So let me begin by introducing my colleague Christine Winter, one of the contributors to this recent edition of Cultural Politics on Multi-Species Justice. Christine is a senior lecturer at the Politics Programme at the University of Otago in Aotearoa, New Zealand, and a research associate at the Sydney Environment Institute. Christine, your article in this special issue discusses how multi-species justice as a new field must recognise Indigenous knowledge in order to avoid replicating colonial domination. I'd like to ask you two questions. Firstly, reflecting on your research focus, how have capitalism and colonialism produced multi-species injustice? And secondly, what would an anti- or post-capitalist or anti- or post-colonial world look like that would produce multi-species justice? Kia ora, uh, thank you Sophie. Uh, ko whakapunaki, toku maunga, ko wairo, toku awa, ko takatimu, toku, uh, toku waka, ko natikahanuni ki wairo, toku iwi, uh, ko Christine Winter, toku ingoa, nō reira, kina toutou, kina koutou, I'll explain what I've just said in a few minutes, but thank you, Sophie and Danny. Um, it's a really, it's a great joy for me to see you both and to be here and with everybody else. And thank you both for the work that you put into coordinating this special edition of Cultural Politics. So what did I just say and why did I say it? What I recited in that introduction was my pepiha. It's a statement of belonging, a statement of relating. And in it, I told you all about the ancestral mountain of my people, Whakapunaki, and our, our ancestral river, the Wairoa. And I told you that our ancestors arrived in Aotearoa on the great ocean-going waka or canoe called Takatimu. 
and that I'm from the iwi or tribe called Ngāti Kahanunu Kiwairoa. So as in the tradition, it was not until I laid out that raft of long-time relationships that I finally told you who I am. What a pepeha does is place each of us in relation to lands and waters, ancestors and political units. To know a person means to know their relationships and where they fit in the environment. It's to know what lands and waters support them and which they must care for in return. It's to know where our ancestors have walked and to remember that they cared for the lands and the waters that we inherit. It's a multi-species genealogy, if you like. And colonialism and capitalism broke that nexus and they continue to break that nexus. So uh, before I go any further, I want to define what I mean by multi-species in the term multi-species justice. So I mean everything. So I include people, animals, birds, fish, insects, reptiles, plants, land and landforms, waters and seas. That is the way I understand the world of multi-species justice. I understand it as a world of responsibility too. So in other words, a responsibility to ensure the flourishing of everything. In the Māori worldview, in Te Ao Māori, humans are understood to be the youngest sibling, the last members of the universal family. And humans have a relational responsibility to ensure that everything might flourish. Justice then is relational. It's a relational concept. Actually, justice is always a relational concept. But in this case, subjectivity applies to everything. So it's a very expansive concept. Everything is understood to have its own type-specific life force or potentiality, and that generates respectworthiness. And of course, uh, you know, like any peoples, we have to gather materials from the natural realm for human flourishing. And that's done in a manner that respects the life force of other and with the understanding that there is, and I'm going to quote John Locke here, which will surprise a lot of people, but it, it is um, with the understanding that there is still enough and is good left, to quote Locke. So there's, there's enough left available for others through the generations. So there isn't that a combination of understanding that the limit, the, of the limits to which the environment can give and ensure that future generations then have plenty. Also, there's an understanding of the relational nature of everything, an understanding that diversity is good. So this is the antithesis, really, of the capitalist and colonial monocultures and of large-scale mineral extraction or of old forest destruction or of factory fishing fleets that uproot and destroy the natural conditions of biodiversity diversity, and that interrupt life cycles that destroy at a rate that's faster than nature can replace. So from my perspective, there are two great harms or injustices justices that are perpetrated by the destructive twins, colonialism and capitalism. 
The first is the objectification and the privatisation of the teeming life embedded in and on lands, waters and seas and the consequential destruction of that life and its relationships. And secondly, the removal of land and water and seas from the care of Indigenous peoples and its capture within the Anglo-European legal system that places minimal responsibilities on the owner to support the complex webs of life and form. And you know, for me, these are the seeds of the polycrisis. They are at the foundation of indescribable suffering. And this is the heart, really, of multi-species injustice. And remember there, the breadth of my understanding of multi-species. It includes human and other animals, all living things, and lands, waters, and the seas that sustain us. So that's my answer to the first part of your question, Sophie. Second part is, what would an anti- or a post-capitalist or an anti- or post-colonial world look like uh, to ensure that we, um, we can generate multi-species justice? This is a very exciting question. This is a lovely question. I really enjoy this. And it's something I really love exploring with my classes too. So an anti- Colonial multi-species justice requires the disruption and the dismantling of the property regime. And I know that will fill a lot of people with horror. But it requires, in the settler states at the very least, the return of the regimes of care and reciprocity, of relationality. So land and water back is the way that that is normally phrased. So back in this context, means the return of land and waters to regimes of relationships and nurture and care for flourishing. So the non-human realm needs to be seen as a member of society and as a set of relational beings. In that context, humans then who occupy spaces are responsible for the care of that place, responsible to and for the relationships that inhabit that place. So rather than a code of human rights, or you know, perhaps in addition to a code of, of rights for everything, an anti-colonial world is one in which we are born with responsibilities as the most destructive members of the natural world to temper our abilities to destroy and to harness them instead to ensure flourishing. And we owe this to our ancestors who cared for the places we call home and to ensure that future generations will inherit a world in which they too can flourish, that they too can call home. Settlers in the settler states have had somewhere between two and four hundred years to learn how to care for their adopted homes, for whenua in Aotearoa or for country in Australia, and they haven't. The politics of the settler states continues to allow ongoing destruction in the face of clear evidence of extinctions, of landform destruction, of pollution, of climate change. So settlers caught in the capitalist regime appear unwilling to learn to live with the earth and to support multi-species flourishing. And it seems to me that the only way forward is land back and water back to indigenous care. That is for settlers to listen and to learn how to implement regimes of multi-species justice from their indigenous compatriots. 
that will only happen, I think, when lands and waters are returned to the care and custodianship of their kin. Thank you so much, Christine. I'm now going to turn to Shriya Chatterjee, who is an art historian and environmental humanities scholar at the Paul Mellon Center for British Art, where she leads the multi-year research project, Climate and Colonialism. Shriya, your essay in the special issue considers early 20th century artistic projects done in collaboration with plant scientists on the theme of plant sentience. Would you firstly be able to reflect on how in the artistic and plant science worlds, capitalism and colonialism might have produced multi-species injustice? And also then how multi-species justice might be generated or crafted in an anti or post-colonial world. Thank you. Thanks so much, Sophie, for, for the question. And also thank you uh, to all of you um, for having me here. Um, so, yes, uh, I think to, um, I am talking about early 20th century um, examples, but also uh, contemporary ones. So I think I'm going to I'm going to talk about both um, to answer your question. And if it's OK, I would like to turn your question around a little bit um, so as to not focus on multi-species injustice but the lack of multi-species justice, which is slightly different and somewhat more hopeful, perhaps. Um, so in uh, in my essay, in the volume that we're launching uh, today, um, which is called Political Plants, um, I argue that um, we should not assume that an interest in plant intelligence um, in artistic and plant science worlds uh, is spontaneously aligned to the ethics of multi-species justice. So for instance, I look at a few examples of contemporary artists. I'll come to the early 20th century examples later. Um, but in the examples of contemporary artists who work with plant sentience, I ask why making plant sentience uh, and how plants make decisions visible to a broader audience is important for them, right? Um, and one of the projects uh, I, that I discuss is by the Italian plant physiologist Stefano Mancuso. Uh, in collaboration with the German artist Kasten Holler. Uh, and I trace some of the ways in which artistic projects around plant sentience aim to make human beings more aware of the agency of plants, but they also sometimes act as a step stepping stone for use in the fields of design and innovation, such as the manufacture of plant robots in the case of uh, Kasten and Holler. Um, and plant robots mimic the ways the way plants move and make decisions, uh, and really put plant intelligence to work through an integration of sensors and robots to create different uh, techno uh, create a different techno natural species. This does not really equate injustice directly in obvious ways because you know you're not no plants are being harmed in the way that you you know imagine. Uh, but it does lead to broader questions about the future of biomimicry and to what knowledge, like, to what use uh, knowledge about plant intelligence is put. So, for instance, who regulates the actions of biotechnological hybrids? They're living, they're dying and multiplying. Does flourishing with plant ro robots, uh, with biorobots and green computing put other species at, at risk? Um, what does it mean for plants as organisms if they can be surpassed by more useful plantoids? So in short, we need to pay attention to the ways in which biomimetic practices are co-opted into capitalist and military industrial frameworks. 
Um, my other example, which you mentioned a little bit in the beginning, goes further back in history and explores the work of the Indian artist Gogonindranath Tagore with, in collaboration with um, the biophysicist Jagadish Chandra Bose, um, who really pioneered the work of plant sentience in the late 1890s and early 1900s. And so it's interesting because we're, we're thinking, you know, different different uh, time period, but um, a lot of the ideas about the co-op the co-opting of knowledge around plant sentience um, is still really relevant. Um, so I show how Bose's conclusions that plants were sentient creatures was co-opted by a particular kind of Hindu nationalism that emerged in late colonial India. So across India in the late 19th and early 20th century centuries, Hindu intellectuals pushed the idea of a monotheistic Hinduism and this gained new reinforcement from a proposed sort of indivisibility of science and religion. And Bose's discoveries provided an obvious and a really easy link to the sciences, until then seen by Europe as an exclusive domain of superiority named and owned by Europeans. So Bose's uh, plant experiments became, in short, a nationalist stra uh, strategy, which is great, And then, but as admirable and productive as some of the nationalist strategies were for India's anti-colonial struggle in the 1920s and 30s when it was still under British rule. Uh, my essay also tries to show the co-optability of plant science into religious and in this case Hindu ideology which at the time was sort of anti-colonial and a good thing for, for the most part but now tra can translate into very different kinds of fundamentalism as well. So I think really to look at how knowledge around multi-species worlds are used by different um, sort of human-centered uh, practices is really kind of key uh, to my thinking. And to speak briefly to your second point, Sophie, I would say that um, rather than providing a clear path towards multi-species justice, my work shows how muddy the waters are by exposing some of the results that engagement with plant sentience has produced. Um, so it really makes evident the gap between the representation of plants as ag agential beings in cultural discourse and the representation of plants in the ethical, political and legal realms. So it enacts this middle step in the apparent continuum between plant agency and plant justice by raising questions around the ethics of co-option. Um, and the processes of co-option I describe are often really well-intentioned in wanting to champion plant sentience and agency. And this is where it gets really complicated because, however, they are always mediated by a range of existing and essentially human-centered discourses and relationships with colonial, nationalist and capitalist world orders. So in short, I suppose I'm answering your second question also a little bit indirectly. Um, and I show in my essay that a deep interest and in engagement with plant sentience does not map directly onto any ethical or political outcomes. It doesn't it's in itself lead to legal subjecthood for plants or a, even a sustained conversation about multi-species multi -species justice. But the main way multi-species justice in the realm of plants and plant sentience might be produced in an anti 
or post-capitalist uh, or anti or post-colonial world is if we remain acutely aware of these histories and current conditions of co-optability. That is, um, I mean, that I think is the first step for artistic and pra artistic practice and cultural theory. So it's this awareness that uh, I hope will open up broader, a broader range of possibilities and structures towards pluriversal approaches to multi-species ethics and justice as well. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Shriya. Moving on now to Sue Reed, who specializes in ocean ontology and the ecological force of law. Sue is a cultural researcher, theorist, artist and writer, and a collaborating researcher with the University of Sydney's Extracting the Ocean Project. Sue, um, are you able to speak to your research and the way ocean governance provokes instances of multi-species injustice um, and also flesh out for us this emerging concept of ocean justice? Um, as with the other two speakers, um, I'd also love to hear your thoughts on how we might cohabit with the ocean in an anti or post-colonial and anti or post-capitalist world. Thanks, Sue. Um, thanks so much, Sophie, and thanks to both you and Danny for all that you've done to bring the special issue together. Um, I'm calling tonight, joining tonight from unceded Gadigal lands and pay my respect to elders past and present. So I think uh, I do have something sort of prepared that folds those um, inquiries together and hopefully... Um, bring some clarity to this ocean justice pathway that I'm exploring. Um, so my research is broadly concerned with multi-being ontologies uh, with an ongoing focus on ecological subjectivity, ocean imaginaries and ocean justice. I prefer the term multi-being to multi-species and they're also not exclusionary. But the species and multi-species, for me, um, tethers to Linnaean taxonomies and systems of classification, which uphold colonial and empirical inheritances that aren't helpful. And if you've ever been relegated to a lower rung by such systems of hierarchical ordering, you know their harms. Among other affordances, multi-being accommodates conditions of material embodiment and vulnerability across human and other than human life worlds and ways. In the case of humans, it acknowledges that through our material embodiments, we're rendered materially vulnerable and our need to provision materials implicates us at all um, as exceptional predators, albeit differently with the complex issues and violences of extractivism, which I think um, Christine alluded to earlier. So considered through a multi-being lens, the ocean is imagined and understood through their transitioning and complex multiplicities, phenomena, lifeways, materials, temporalities, and the relationships that hold these together, but also the anthropogenic forces doing their best to tear them apart. We understand so little of the ocean, human communities have not dwelled in their depths and tendencies, and most of the ocean is beyond the reach of solar light, physically and temporally non-linear. Thinking and imagining with the ocean 
highlights the radical inadequacy of anthropocentric and terrestrial-centric tools for engaging with the ocean's ontological dimensions or for developing ocean epistemologies more broadly. The multi-being ocean is worthy of greater attention within environmental humanities and cultural studies generally. They're worthy of greater specialisation as oceanic humanities and of more frequent and curious sorry, transdisciplinary collaborations across humanities, critical arts, marine sciences and law. So ocean governance. The United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea makes up the bones of contemporary ocean governance. Its jurisdiction encompasses 99% of the habitable volume on Earth. Despite its environmental provisions, it prioritises extractive ocean development. Ocean governance includes institutions such as the International Seabed Authority, mandated to advance seabed mining within a jurisdiction covering about 40% of the Earth's surface, and, of, and also the Fisheries Management Commissions. Together with their operational practices, these legal tools and institutions function as an architecture of exploitation. Thinking of the ocean in spatialising terms is what the law of the sea does so well. It fillets the ocean into functional zones and creates an ocean simulacrum that is both not the same realm in which a marine being lives, but also the legal abstraction that nevertheless impacts them. Lack of alignment between law's fixed spatialised ocean and the multi-being ocean exacerbates the impacts of the harms that it structurally normalises. When UNCLOS was being developed in the latter half of the 20th century, ocean science was still nascent, ecological relationships were poorly understood and long-standing indigenous ocean knowledges weren't taken into account. Little was understood of the cumulative impact of centuries of fishing and whaling activities or of the emerging issues of anthropogenic waste. As just a brief example, from the late 19th century, um, European colonial invasions imposed intense predatory pressures on the people and more than human communities of Southeast Asia and the Pacific. Between 1950 and 2000, the fishing fleets of Asia and Oceania increased their recorded marine catches by 422% and 1,218% respectively, against a global average of 344%. From the free seas regime of the 1600s to today's UNCLOS, the law has facilitated dominating maritime nations to plunder other nations' marine populations and oceanic cultures, and has legitimated unrelenting violences on peoples, embodied marine beings and their lifeways. Uh, better, more responsive and enforceable laws would help, but my concept of ocean justice argues that this is also and significantly a cultural matter uh, concerning different perceptions and relationships with the ocean and the concepts of subjectivity and humanity that inform these relations. Ocean governance is built on a bedrock, still, <laughs> of enlightenment values that prioritise humans over other natures and certain groups of humans. Within this imaginary, corporate humanity is the paradigmatic subject of law and the primary beneficiary of a system built on extractive mastery. It is for them 
that the Law's Ocean is conceived as a watery pantry to keep profitable fish catchers fresh and where future mineral harvests are held in trust. Given that the law of the sea controls the dominant human relationship with the ocean as one of exploitation, ocean justice necessarily engages with the law and the levers of its underlying logics, tapping at its hull, loosening the authority of its anchoring claims. But it also imagines and thinks substantively outside the law to develop new relational imaginaries and to create spaces for existing but subjugated ones, such as those that inform long-standing Indigenous worldviews, as alternatives to the dominant extractive imaginary exploited by corporate humanity. This includes developing imaginaries that extend concepts of materially embodied ecological subjectivity and that recognise recognises humans as exceptional predators so that we might respond more ethically and responsibly to the violences this entails. My concept of ocean justice stirs and thinks with multiple epistemological and ontological dimensions of multi-being as a source of knowledge, specifically the ocean as a source of knowledge. But not only to trace what the text of the law does in the water column or at the seafloor, but to also open generative conceptual spaces in which to imagine relational ethics differently. Ocean justice seeks to ebb as far back from the familiar shoreline as possible, to rigorously imagine beyond ocular, solar and oxygen-centric ontologies so that we might respond more sensitively and proximately to the ocean's material relations and vulnerabilities at local and planetary scales. Fabulous. Thank you so much, Sue. Um, last but by no means least, I'd like to turn to Hayley Singer, who is a lecturer in creative writing at the University of Melbourne. Hayley's research and writing practice moves across the fields of creative nonfiction, critical ecological feminisms, animal studies and queer embodiments. Hayley, you've been reflecting and writing on how writers can respond to the existence and deep violence of industrial abattoirs. With that in mind, um, what in your view are the ways in which non-fiction writing and poetry might reproduce multi-species injustice, but also help steer us towards multi-species justice? Thank you so much for this question, Sophie. And um, I've loved hearing everybody speak uh, so far. I'm sitting here on beautiful, beautiful Bunurong country tonight, and I'd like to pay my respects um, to elders past and present. So to answer your question or to approach an answer to your question, which is sort of enormous, um, I'd like to just start by saying a little something about creative nonfiction as a genre for anyone who's not um, familiar with this as a, a type of writing. So creative nonfiction is a genre that's honest. It's absolutely based in truth. But as creative nonfiction writers, we draw on creative strategies um, to do something a little bit more emotionally complex in writing than a genre like, say, journalism. Um, so this is a really important thing. We have a whole heap of tools and strategies that we can bring to the page that allow us to really um, get into the emotional space of the topic we're writing about, okay? So the idea of reproducing multi-species injustice 
um, feels really important to me um, because the injustice that is called industrial animal agriculture is everywhere hidden. Um, and because of this, I'm led to think about lamentation as a genre, which is actually a genre that is about making pain seeable and hearable. So lamentation pushes against default stories. Um, and I'm talking about default stories like the narrative of the happy dairy cow, um, narratives that are everywhere and do a lot of work to actually mask the actual conditions in which cows or pigs or sheep or goats or chickens or geese are living in, right? So these default stories are the ones that allow us to think very quickly about a topic but might not actually tell us much about the reality of that topic. That's what I mean when I say default stories. So lamentation as a genre can really allow us to push against default stories by speculatively recreating conditions of injustice through language. That's not always fully formed language. It's you know, obviously not always written language, but in my case, it is about recreating speculatively those conditions of injustice and putting those conditions that are often hidden down on the page. Part of what I come up against, uh, you know, often in writing the article that I have in this issue and, and also in, in, in my sort of work more broadly, um, is that we cannot actually see what we are seeing when we're looking at conditions of injustice in relation to multi-beings and we cannot hear what we are hearing when we hear cries of pain or when we hear distress. Um, so lamentation as a genre can actually bring those systems, structures and processes of violence that we live with, that we might support, that we might um, directly or indirectly enact up to the surface to puncture those narratives that otherwise smooth them over. So this is a genre of carrying pain from one being towards another. It's about grieving openly. And when grief happens in public, and I really take him back to those lines that you read, Danny, at the beginning from the David Brooks poem, when grief happens in public, um, I think it can become politically and culturally transformative um, because we are feeling it with our bodies and in a collective way when, when it's happening in public. Um, I think that this is the potential of lamentation. I'm not suggesting that, you know, somebody writes a lament and then there's all this cultural transformation because obviously in relation to industrial animal agriculture, there are a lot of narratives that need to be unpacked in order for us to get to the place where we are seeing what we are seeing and where we are hearing what we're actually hearing when we are faced with um, another being in distress or experiencing injustice. So another idea that is associated with lamentation and that I think about when I'm engaging with creative nonfiction is that it calls us to pause our daily lives to grieve and sometimes to grieve with our whole bodies and just um, to draw a moment of connection between creative nonfiction and lamentation. When I've been thinking about this, I have been going back um, to Danielle, your book, Summertime, where you try to do a calculation that reckons with how many days and hours and moments would need, be need, we would need to give over the grieving, the 2019-2020 bushfires. This would stop life as we know it. So 
that idea of openly grieving and of grieving with our whole bodies in writing. And when readers get to experience that, there is some kind of, I think, slowing down that happens. At least this is my experience when I'm reading and writing. And that that slowing down can possibly open up the space for um, cultural transformation or at least different cultural conversations. So this is where my cynicism comes in, though. This is where my fears, I suppose, start to creep in um, because reading and writing are really solitary activities. This is how they are engaged with often. It's not always that way, but, you know, thinking about shifting conversations of justice away from hierarchy, away from um, autonomy and away from individualization. I also think that we need to shift reading practices into relational spaces so that we can actually have um, robust cultural conversation that are emerging from works of creative nonfiction and poetry. Um, and I think this because, as I say in my article, you know, what I'm thinking of as a kind of multi-species literary justice isn't about um, aiming at individual moral improvement through reading or writing. So I really am not following the idea that art encourages empathy and empathy will save us all. Um, you know, I think with Namwali Serpil in this article who says, you know, writing can simulate empathy, but it doesn't necessarily stimulate empathy. And I think that that's really, really important. Um, what I am thinking about and drawing on Namwali Serpil to do is to think about creative nonfiction as a genre that can move towards the idea that multi-species literature can broaden representations of multi-species of multi-being life and death, and in doing so can imaginatively support us in building solidarities across differences, similarities, and complexities of our embodied beings. I think that's really important to say, um, you know, circling back to the idea of these default narratives, which don't have to be voiced, we can carry them around and, and we can follow them and adhere to them. And um, when we come into a more relational space in terms of reading and writing, I think that our conversations can change. And this feels important because at this point in time, the quantity of meat eating in this country continues to rise. <laughs> Um, the continued cramped confinement of multi-beings um, in things like concentrated animal uh, feeding operations and slaughterhouses are leading to more and more multi-being pandemics to the point where culling um, is becoming the norm rather than the exception. Um, so this is a nightmare situation. Um, obviously, I, I, should, I don't have to say that, um, but what I'm finding is that default stories such as the happy, you know, the happy farmed animal does allow us to slide our eyes to the side of all of this um, and the pain caused by this practice, these practices of intensely breeding, intensely confining and intensively slaughtering animals aren't going to leave us until we change them. And But first we actually have to know what is going on, like we really have to know. Um, and when we know or we're thinking with different narratives, we can have different ways to work through the fact that we are participants or bystanders or indirect enactors of violence that is often thought of as unthinkable. But actually, when you sit down to write a piece of creative nonfiction about this work, 
depressingly, you find that it's, inc- it's, it's so thinkable to the point where you can't stop thinking about it. <laughs> At least that, was, that has been my experience. It is so thinkable. It has been so thoroughly thought out. Right, so we can't necessarily say that this violence is unthinkable and leave it at that, um, because it is something that we need to reckon with and and really think about. So, um, you know, just to cycle back to the genre of creative nonfiction and why I think it's so important, why I'm so happy that you asked me about it, Sophie, is that um, creative nonfiction is a form that can hold on the page. The fact that you can, I can, as a writer, attempt to approach this thinkable, unthinkable, um, enormous structure and process, but I cannot write it all. I cannot say it all. Um, and creative nonfiction as a genre can hold a writer's limitations. And in fact, to pretend that when a writer is approaching such an enormous topic as not having limitations would be to adopt the standpoint of mastery, which is just so far from being useful in this moment in time or ever, never useful, (laughs) Um, but so far from being useful, productive or even remotely connected um, to what I'm thinking about that creative nonfiction becomes the most um, useful, the richest form that I can imagine using. And I am talking about nonfiction more so than poetry because I'm just, you know, poets are a force and I'm not a poet. So I can't, I feel that I can't speak for poets or poetry um, because I've not reached that level, you know, of, of being, you know, you know, to write poetry. But I think that's really important to say that creative nonfiction can hold limitations and boundaries on the page so that a writer can say, this is where my knowledge ends, this is where my ability to think ends, and this is me picking up the pieces, this is me trying to pick up the pieces. Um, I think that that acknowledgement of not knowing, of fearing, but approaching anyway, in itself can be culturally transformative when other people have the experience of engaging with rigorous writing that performs that. Um, The final thing that I will say, and just coming back to the idea that reading and writing, you know, in Western culture and in, you know, this moment in time when, you know, so many things are individualised and particularly reading, um, I'm really interested in um, spaces that can be made where we can approach this type of writing in a collective and relational way and we can unpack the implications of it We can unpack our feelings about it. We can unpack our limitations of it in a relational way because this work, I think if we're expecting this work, um, which is cultural and collective, to be individualised, we're asking too much of anyone. Um, So um, this means really pushing back against individualised practices of reading but also, um, you know, coming to mingle as writers and readers with our grief and our confusions and our limitations sort of on the table um, so that we can start from there, so we can start to see what we are seeing and hear what we are hearing when we are, you know, recognising or, or, you know, confronted with or standing before or experiencing, multi, you know, a multi-being injustice. Thank you so much, Haley.
I imagine that those who are present with us today have some understanding of why we invited these four women to contribute to this journal, just their capacity to evoke both violence and possibility. Thank you so much for those really extraordinary answers. I'm, we have such great questions and I really do apologise that we're not going to have the opportunity to address them, but I'm going to put a challenge to you four and I'm just going to ask one of these questions, which I think is sufficiently capacious to capture much of what's been asked and ask if each of you can just give uh, one minute or less thoughts, snapshot thoughts. Um, so how do we move from multi-species justice as virtue ethics, as necessary self-cultivation to a practical program which transforms national policies and the planetary agenda? So how do we move from uh, an ethics of multi-species justice to uh, another way of putting that would be a political transformation of multi-species justice? Uh, should we go in the reverse order? Hayley, are you okay to start? Yeah, I, I'll start. Um, look, I, I think, I think um, that poetry these forms of writing that disarm us and that unhinge our guts need to be taken as very serious sort of political documents and they need to have space within political conversations. Um, that's, I'm going to leave it at that. Thank you. So. Widen our communities of dialogue beyond the university, full stop. What about beyond the human? beyond the university, widen our, <laughs> widen our communities of dialogue, full stop. So those communities, um, exactly, beyond the human, um, widen the dialogue within those communities so that we have um, not all of the same players contributing all the time, so that we have different imaginations contributing um, to these ongoing transitional issues because there's not one solution, right? So this is going to be transitioning um, as the oceans and other worlds transition, so. Thank you. Srila? Yeah, I think actually not that different from uh, Haley and Sue, but really thinking about international dialogue as well because uh, so much of uh, political transformation is seen as quite sort of nation-led and nationalistic, especially in a, in a moment where um, national politics can be quite um, specific and um, and intense. Uh, so I, I think like th thinking about kind of um, larger structures of cooperation, uh, degrowth, um, how we kind of approach anti-capitalist um, ideas, and, and really the um, the place of ethics and uh, the arts in in political conversations, I think is is also really key. And again, like. That depends on national politics, but it can 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 we move beyond that? I think is the question to talk to each other. Thank you, Christine. In Australia, vote for the voice. That um, seems to me the hope for Australia is to have Aboriginal voices um, enshrined in your constitution. 
in Aotearoa, it's a matter of co-governance um, for these ideas to be shared in all avenues of, you know, uh, by these ideas, I mean um, in Indigenous understandings of multi-species justice, of the role of humans as part of a multi-species community. Um, uh, can can enter the um, the halls of governance uh, through the voice in Australia and through co-governance in Aotearoa. So that the mechanisms are um, are available. Um, it's just a matter of the population understanding um, the benefits, uh, which which accrue to everybody. And unfortunately, some people don't seem to understand that yet. Thank you. Sophie, do you want to make a quick contribution to that question? I'm, I'm, I'm staying with the wonder of all the responses, so I'm happy to leave it at that, Danny. I, I mean, I, I think we have to have political representation of the more than human. It's, the, it's a basic principle of democracy is the all affected principle that those who are affected by law and policy are get a say in the formation of that law and policy and at a time when the laws and policies that are being made unevenly by humans and I mean not all humans have equal say as Christine said those who are on the absolute front line of ecological and climate catastrophe are beings other than humans and and I think there has to be a radical shift where we find, explore, experiment with ways of uh, beings other than humans, all earth beings being not only subjects of concern, but being political subjects. So that's my answer. Sorry, I couldn't resist giving it. Um, <laughs> but now I'm taking us to the very end. I want to uh, thank uh, the brilliant team at the Sydney Environment Institute, particularly Suha, who has been behind this, uh, but everybody else who's been part of it as well. Uh, the wonderful panellists, as I said, the team at Cultural Politics, uh, the artists who contributed, the other contributors, and my wonderful partner in crime in this journal, Sophie Chow, and everybody who, as Haley said so exquisitely, uh, voice is only powerful if it's collective and conversational so thank you for being here and we look forward to further conversations thank you